Hello, welcome to another episode of On the Corner, the official podcast of PitcherList.com. I'm your host, Eric Samolski, joined by, looks like a fresh haircutted Nick Pollock. What is happening? Yeah, I have the best guy, Aziz. Um, it's uh, And every single time he cuts my hair, he goes, movie star. And I love yeah. him. And I haven't thought about it before he said it this time, and he said it, and I just had the biggest grin on my face. Uh, but it's good to see you. I hope you had a wonderful holiday. Eric? I did. Holidays with a mobile toddler are very different. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I sat down at the Thanksgiving table for five minutes. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, was it good, though? It's good to see it everybody. Good. It was great. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, no, you know, no we, we haven't been getting all the Thanksgiving gifts quite yet when it comes to players in the move. We have had some, you know, you have Sunny Gray moving and everything like that. Uh, check out the, the, the Plus Pitch podcast we'll have on the Cardinals um, coming out uh, next week. So you'll hear all, all my takes on the moves and everything there and updates with like Lance Lynn and, of course, Kyle Gibson and stuff. But yeah. there is actually one thing I do want to announce um, that uh, by the time you are listening to this, you might have seen it on Twitter. So excited about this. I'm not even kidding. Wednesday, December 6th at 3 p.m. Eastern time, go to playback.tv slash pitchlist. Why? Because I'm bringing on Pablo Lopez to do a one-on-one pitch breakdown of one of his starts. We're literally going to be live. We're going to talk about what he does. I'm going to showcase the, the the PLV apps about his pitches, talk about the development of them for the first 10 minutes or so. And then we're going to jump into a game and literally just hear his thoughts as he's going through this game. I am so unbelievably excited about this. I've been hinting at it for a while. I've been talking to Pablo, like, please, I would love to do this. He's like, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. And we're doing it actually Wednesday, December 6th, 3 p.m. Eastern time, playback.tv slash pitcher list. Obviously, you can see it on the site or the uh, on uh, Twitter as well. So be there. That's amazing. That's amazing. Can't wait. I can't wait for you to be like, but why did you throw this pitch? I actually <laughs> asked him, I was like, I'm going to say this. Is it okay? He goes, yeah, I love talking about this stuff. It's really yeah. cool. Like I sometimes alert things. I'm like, this is why you're the greatest human ever, Pablo. Like, could I'm going to obviously not be, here. you know, I'm going to be as tactful as I can. Like obviously kind because like I do not know everything. So sure. cannot wait. Yeah, that that's super exciting. Obviously, you know, Nick and I are really excited to talk about uh, some of these new pitchers and their homes, um, and that'll be something we get into more as we get into like the prep for twenty twenty four and you know how pitchers are changing based on on where they're at, um, or you know if some guys uh, come up in some subsequent episodes uh, that are already in new homes, we may want to uh, dive we'll into some of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so. Today, we are going through pitchers 61 to 70 um, on Nick's Top 200, which, again, you can find on PitcherList.com. Remember, not just to look at the rankings, but to read the blurbs as well. Um, this is a tier that uh, we began talking about in the last episode. Um, and just as a reminder, actually, it was the entirety of the last episode were all pitchers in this tier. So I'm going to run through it anyway. Uh, this tier began with Hunter Brown, who was 48. So it went Hunter Brown, Hunter Green. Dylan Cease, Chris Sale, Nathan Eovaldi, Charlie Morton, Carlos Rodon, Sawyer Gibson-Long, who uh, Nick mentioned was probably going to fall out of this tier and most likely did, given some yes. offseason moves. Uh, Mason Miller, Nick Lodolo, Michael King, James Paxton, uh, and Nestor Cortez was the last arm we mentioned on the last episode. So we're going to get two pitchers here to round out that tier and then begin a new tier. Yeah. Um, and so I'm going to... You're going to name two tiers, right? You're going to name this continuation tier and you're going to name the next tier. Um, yesterday was brick outside. And for those who don't know, that means really, really cold. Um, I always love that term. 
So I want you to name your your winter clothing accessories. I want to know when it gets cold out, are you a hat guy, a scarf guy? Are you a glove guy? Are you like a big jacket guy? Are you a sweatshirt under a jacket guy? Um, you know, are you a beanie guy? Are you just the hood of a sweatshirt guy? Like, I, I kind of want to know where you're at in terms of your your winter aesthetic. Yeah, I would say the um, the tier six one, because these are a lot of the guys like the volatile could really be great for you or not. I would say that it is the scarf tier for me because I am definitely all about the scarf. I can never decide on the best way to wear one. I can't. I just can't. Do I do the uh, the flip it over, put it through the hole kind of thing? Do I do the uh, the double wrap around of it? Do I Mm. do I make a little nice little knot and pull it through? Where do I stuff it? Do I just leave it over my jacket? Do I tuck it in or not? Which is the right one for the scenario? Do I want up to my face? I'm breathing through the scarf or Mm -hmm. not? Do I just want it for my neck and protecting? It's tough, but I'm a scarf guy. Nick, as you know, I worked at a a bilingual French American school for 11 years. So I've got (laughs) scarf knowledge, man. I've got (laughs) scarf opinions. Yeah, we'll we'll scarf scarf it down later. Um, But yeah, I I do think it depends on the jacket you're wearing, right? Like if it's a pea coat and there's an opening to tuck, you got to tuck. If it's it's like a puffer coat, you might not be able to tuck. Um, mm. so yeah, it all depends on the style and the size of the, of the scarf. Yeah. This is the scarf um, So only ma- the, the amount of possibilities of scarves can only be matched by the amount of possibilities of how the 2024 season of your number 61 pitcher <laughs> is going to go. Um, and that's Clayton Kershaw. Yes. Well, I mean, it could be anything, right? At this point, like we just have no idea what to expect. Yeah, um, I have little faith in Clayton Kershaw for the next year. We we know that his shoulder was just so busted um, pitching against the Arizona Diamondbacks. And it doesn't get better, it gets worse. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a Hall of Famer. He's been, it's, he was the pitcher of our generation. Like We know this. And uh, I kind of hope he just retires now. If not, I hope he signs the Dodgers one more time and then says this is my last year. And I don't know even what we're going to get from him, uh, how long they're going to wait, if they're not even going to let him start until the very end, just to make sure that they get something for the playoffs out of him. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And I don't really want to deal with it. Now, yeah. I do imagine that when he does pitch, Clint Kershaw will be effective for you. He should mm-hmm. generally. And that's cool. But there's going to be a lot of headache of just figuring everything out that I just honestly don't want to deal with as a manager. So I'll, I'll- push back on that in one sense of like I think he's kind of the perfect guy to draft for what you've been talking about a lot which is like if you're in a 12 team format where there are constantly pitchers on the waiver wire and you get to the point in like one of your late round picks right we're talking about some guy who's ranked in the 60s here so yep. he's not he's not being drafted ideally as one of your locked in members of your starting rotation but if we get the sense in spring training that he will start the year healthy and on the mound yeah, I think he's the perfect guy to take a, to one of your final pitching spots with because there's one of three outcomes. He's healthy and great, and you love that. He's hurt, and you cut him or IL him. Or he's Madison Bumgarner, and you cut him. Um, right. I just don't. I don't think there's any world in which you have Clayton Kershaw on your roster for months, looking at like a. Four seven ERA and going. Oh, do I keep him? Do I cut him? Like he was really good this year when he was healthy and and pitching. Sure. So I think like he's kind of that great 
like I'll know in the first month of the season what's going on here. Maybe I, in the first two weeks. I'm not in disagreement with you um, at, at all here, and I do need to recognize that at 61 here, I literally don't know. I mean, you you just gave a hypothetical of if he's healthy out of camp, right? And not or only on do you not know if he's healthy, he could be retired. Yeah, uh, exactly. I mean, he could just not be pitching. So I make these rankings now um, mm-hmm. without any of that information. And there are certain times I take some liberties of like, I'm assuming X, Y, and Z. But I think with Clayton Kershaw, I had to really bake in all of that for this. And often I do say when it comes to injured guys, I shift what my ranking is by February because we're going to have more information about them in some fashion. Yeah. Um, if, if Clayton Kershaw isn't retired by then, uh, cool, we'll know that, you know. Um, so I do imagine if he's not retired, he goes up a little bit more. If there's word about surgery or injury or whatever, he changes. If he's saying, no, I'm good, I feel great, and I'm expected to do this, awesome, then he would move up a little bit. And you're exactly mm-hmm. right. Same kind of thing with like James Paxton, I've been saying, uh, or say Mason Miller, um, Carlos Rodon kind of thing uh, of like, why not take the chance on that um, when you have no risk with it? I don't think that Clint Kershaw is going to be going at the end of your drafts, unfortunately. It's Clint Kershaw. Right. And it's not like Clint Kershaw had like that 3 8 ERA last year. It was a 2 4 6 and a 106 whip over uh, yeah. 132 innings. Like people are going to see that and go, uh, no, I need to take Clint Kershaw as like my 35th starter. And uh, I can't do that. Right. So right. Uh, there's going to be a balancing act there. It depends on where the value is of it. Um, but yeah, I'm absolutely in like a late round. Like, what the heck? We'll see what this is. Uh, because normally you're not dealing with the guys around this tier. Yeah. Speaking of being drafted earlier than rankings, uh, I have your next pitcher who's at 62. I have him 50th Ah, for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that's potentially optimistic, but it's right next to Nick Lodolo. And I feel like I can see that they're kind of being equal. Um, And it's Taj Bradley. So talk to me about um, your thoughts on Taj. Yeah. I I actually just did the Tampa Bay Rays rotation this morning about... I finished recording that podcast an hour before this. Uh, And I am out on Taj Bradley. So Taj, Taj, think like Tyler Glass now. Four-seamer that gets a ton of induced vertical breaks should do really well upstairs. A cutter that is a little bit worse than Glasnow slider, but it's the same kind of idea. And then you have a curveball that, if executed down low and everything, should miss a lot of bats and be really confusing. Problem is Taj Bradley has no idea where these things are going. Mm-hmm. And even in his successful moments, you know, he's trying to throw a fastball away and it happens to be 97 up and in and that's strike three. Great. I'm so happy you got strike three. You were not trying to do that. It's chaotic. And I don't like drafting chaotic pitchers. This is a piece, poor execution, awesome stuff guy. I am not saying that Taj Bradley is destined to be this forever. We have seen pitchers improve their command. Watching Taj Bradley innately, it doesn't look like it's violent mechanics either. It's very slow and straight, and it feels as if this should be better. The arm circle needs a little bit of adjustment. The timing of his front shoulder and then his back foot turning with his hips, all of that gets out of line and is not consistent pitch by pitch. So there is a suggestion. Well, Taj Bradley must be aware of this. The Rays are aware of this because it's him down to the minors because they couldn't. he couldn't command anything. Like, figure this out. He didn't. And it's possible this offseason, that's all he's trying to do. And all of a sudden, he has that tweak, and there he is. So I'm okay with Taj Bradley if he's going at a discount. Mm-hmm. The assumption that Taj Bradley is going to be consistent enough with that command uh, is not one I want to make. Sure. And I I can see that if you pick up Taj Bradley, if you draft him and it's April and it's more of the same of just 
just watch one game. All, that's all you need to do in April. You yep. watch one game of Taj Bradley. It's even in his good starts, it was only like an inning or two where he looked amazing. And then it would kind of fall apart. But the, you know, the luck was there that things were fine and batters when they swung at these bad pitches didn't take advantage of it. Or he just happened to find enough of the zone, even though it wasn't close to where he was trying to get it. So watch a game of Taj Bradley and ask yourself, is this a pitcher who's in command of himself? Is he battling himself and where he wants to put the ball? Or is he battling the batter by actually sequencing and putting things where he wants? And if it's the former, yeah, get out of there. <laughs> this is going to be a hipster, headache-inducing pitcher, stifling the entire roster all year. You're going to be dreaming of that those nine strikeout one walk games and saying, oh, if only, if only that. Forgetting that there were over 20 guys drafted after pick 290 last year that were fantastic through the year last year. And you're just going to be turning that down for the what if of Taj Bradley. Mm-hmm. So I'm generally out here. I'm going to say that he's not going to be stable enough. Um, but I really hope he is. Yeah, I think the good thing, another good thing about a pitcher like this is like you'll you'll know again, you'll know early on in the sense of we're saying like my ranking on him. And again, that's based off last year, not having looked. I haven't done the deep dive analysis that you've continued to do on all the rotations, but it's like, okay, if X, Y and Z happens, there's an upside to put him here. Yeah. You'll see in spring training young young with young guys in particular, you'll see the work that they've been doing in the offseason because Absolutely. if it involves tweaking of an arsenal and that none of that has been done or is being showcased, then you can be like, okay, I I was ranking this based on these things improving. I have no indication that they're improving. I will now, you know, lower right. and, and adjust. Yeah. So, so for so me, it's like I liked the cutter at the beginning of the year when it was slower and um, it he you know ramped up the velocity and the movement on the cutter in the second yeah, half. Yeah, Bradley's of the year. Bradley's and cutter was like a slider, and now it's a cutter. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I also, but I do like the changeup that he, the way that he improved the changeup in the second half of the year. I like components of it. I will say, okay, I like components. You, you guys of don't it. see the face um, I just made. Uh, yeah. It's so inconsistent. Um, I, there I are do times not, yes, he executed exactly. it, but it's you see like on the pitch movement. It's a massive spray. It's like a fireball going through, leaving remnants of itself instead of just a clump, you know? Let's phrase it as I like the idea behind it. I like the intention behind what he's doing with the changeup. So I've seen flashes of pitches at different times that I'm like, okay, we could Frankenstein together an arsenal here that I think is really appealing. It's and and I again I trust the organization, so it's going to be really important for me to see what happens in the off season and if any of that has seemingly come together, and if not, you know maybe he's a guy I take with the last pick of my rotation and just see if yeah. you know. I, I the comes thing together. is, there's going to be someone in every league that's like, oh, Taj Bradley is my guy for sure, and I'm like, but, yeah, no, but he, I, but I, he I just can't do it, you know. He, you know, wanted the bed enough at the end of the season that I think there's a lot of people that are like, oh, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get burned sure. by Taj Bradley. Yeah, that's very, but, that's very fair. But he's a hyped enough prospect that if he has I mean, a, like, a good couple spring training starts, he's yeah. going to fly up. Like, do you think that Taj Bradley ADP is going to be higher or lower than Carlos Rudon's? I think it's going to be lower. Okay. I, I think, I, mean, be, I think, yeah. I think Rodon <laughs> is enough of a, you know, we've seen, you know, SP one level upside yeah. that I think he's yeah. going to go higher. Fair enough. Um, another guy who I we're going to start the second tier, actually, with a guy who I am similarly high on. I have 59th. Um, you have 63rd. We're just so or, close sorry. here. Uh, we don't, we, we, I promise everybody. Eric is not influenced by mine. I'm not influenced by him. No. 
So it's it's great. Uh, this is a guy who was really good, and I think people forgot about him. But before we get into who it is, um, I need your second winter yeah. accessory. This is easy. This is very easy because this I, is like the look. I need this, and I it's not the most exciting thing, but like this is what gets me through the winter. And it's I have these behind the um, behind the head earmuffs. Oh, you do um, one of those. Yeah. yeah, like the reverse of I. Uh, Oh my gosh, I can't remember his name all of a sudden. Uh, LaForge, uh, you know, across his eyes. I have that through the back of my head for the earmuffs, right? Mm. Um, that is a Star Trek reference. And uh, so those, it just like makes you warmer instantly having sure. that. You need it. I'm not a beanie guy. I can't do beanies. It's super valuable too for people. I have really, I get really bad hat head. Um, mm-hmm. And so beanies, I remember when I used to teach and I would wear the beanie to school and then I'd have to go to the bathroom before classes and spend minutes just making sure my hair wasn't a disgusting <laughs> mess because kids, especially when you teach middle school, will be like, why is your hair stupid? And they're like, OK, cool. So uh, Thanks, you got to figure that out before we start. Um, but yeah, I, so I, I never I just always sucked it up. I was never a behind the ears guy, but maybe uh, maybe I got to give it a shot. It's pretty good. Um, so. The pitcher who I was mentioning who was forgotten about uh, but was pretty good when uh, in the rotation is Tyler Wells of the Orioles. So talk to me about him. So the question right now is, what is the Orioles rotation? Um, I was able to talk to the guys at Masson and they were like, yeah, we want Tyler Wells to do it. But it seems like Kramer has the in spot for the number four right now. Um, and if the Orioles are going to get another starter, which it looks like they should, right? Grayson mm-hmm. Rodriguez. Cal Bradish, John Means are one, two, three there. Kramer looks like he's really settled into it, even though he wasn't as successful as Wells. Um, maybe they add one more, then it's not Wells in there. And I go, yeah. no, this is stupid. Tyler Wells is really good at commanding his stuff and getting the most out of it. Um, his four-seamer, super well-located upstairs, um, 96th percentile in that. And sure, it had a, not a great ICR, 41% batted ball rate of that. But he got 13% swing strike rates on it. Um, he was able to use it in two strike counts at a really good put away rate on that four seamer. So Tyler Wells was getting the most out of a four seamer that you normally look at that and be like, it's 92, 93. This isn't that good. Commands it well. Then the cutter is his all around strike pitch at 71% strikes. Um, he gets that down and away often a lot. Sometimes get it over the zone. You have a changeup that goes down an arm side effectively for an 18% swing strike rate. That's really good. You have a more aggressive slider that he's working on um, and saves a lot for two strike counts. I just see a, a guy that's just polished um, mm-hmm. and when it comes to his command and can go six innings constantly when he does start. Should he be that sub one whip that we saw really? Uh, not really. No. And he's got fatigued a little bit by the end and then he moved, of course, to the bullpen um, after that injury in uh, in July, went to the minors and after that and then he uh, he came back and was more of the fireman almost for the Orioles after Batista went yeah. down. But I really don't think that this is a an arsenal of a bullpen piece. This is made to be a starting pitcher. Mm-hmm. And I really hope that the Orioles understand that. Hopefully, at the very least, they have him as long relief in the beginning. Um, and then once something opens up, because something always does open up, it should be Tyler Wells' game. Especially when it's being held down by John Means. Right. Uh, why, is, why are you going after John Means right now? I, listen, I'm a fan of John Means, but health is not a... Uh, Tommy John, a skill set that he has possessed. It's fine, he's back now. We're good. Sure. Uh, Kramer is more of the uh, like. Okay, hold on a second. Right. Um, but I, yeah, have an eye on Tyler Wells. I think I was assuming at this point that he had a rotation spot. 
Mm-hmm. And I think now I'm second guessing that. I'm absolutely more excited about the next two on this now yes. than I am Tyler Wells. So I, I, I've since changed my tune a little bit. And that's, I think that's because there's some, well, at least the next guy, there's some of the unknown, uh, what is it here? Um, I think Wells could be hampered by the fact that he has proven himself to be a decent bullpen option in the past, and the Orioles may want that. Um, mm. I like that he started relying on the slider more in the second half of the year. Um, because I just think it's a better overall pitch than the than the cutter, um, and so and the cutter gives up a pretty high barrel rate. Um, so I I like that he was kind of leaning on this four seam slider and then mixing in his you know his other pitches as you talked about. There's there's some depth um, to that arsenal. Uh, I don't you're not going to get in my opinion you're not going to get like you know there's I don't think there's going to be some unlocked strikeout upside here, but it's a good I think it's a good ratio arm on what will most likely remain a very strong AL team next year. Yeah. And so I think you're, you know, you're getting strong ratios and good team context um, and a good pitcher's park. And so all of those things, as long as you're not relying on strikeouts, make me think he's a, a solid asset. Yeah. I mean, Tyler Wells is going to have a 200 BABIP, of course. Um, and on the same time, he's not going to have a 1.9 homer per nine. Right. Uh, all, so- all true. Uh, 6.3 hit per nine is what really brought down that whip, uh, which is obviously going to go closer to like 7.58 or so. Um, but yeah, I, I, I see an effective starter as long as he gets the innings. It's just, you know, what's the situation? And do you really need to take the chance on the situation now? And I'd say no. Right. Um, there's more, We know more about Tyler Wells than we know about the next pitcher who is a total unknown. And we'll get to that after the break. So, Nick, tell me who this mystery is. Starting pitcher number 64 is. It's not much of a mystery. I mean, it's Shota Imanaga. Uh, and he's, I think he's way better than I was giving him credit. I looked more into him since uh, doing this uh, back in October. And uh, I mean, talking to Eno, of course, about him, Eno's you know, like, well, he had the best stuff plus the WBC. I saw is, that. Which is really cool considering that I didn't even think of Shoto as a stuff guy. Like, I think of him as a command guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's a four pitch arm from the left side. The fastball doesn't really seem like it's a big stuff thing, but lots of induced vertical break. Um, and he does know how to go upstairs with that. Has a fork ball, has a slider, has a curveball. The biggest weakness I see about Imanaga is the slider. Um, it, it, it was actually the pitch that Trey Turner hit for a home run in that championship game. And uh, he did not get that thing down on him. He, it was a, it, was, it swept across nice and easily. It was on a little platter. Trey Turner was sitting on a heater and he was out in front, but it was so, just so meaty that he was able to just knock it um, over the left uh, field wall. So Imanaga still has a little bit, I think, of polish. It's not like he's just completely done and ready. And that's why I do like Yamamoto more. I think Yamamoto is just in that place now. Sure. Um, with a little bit more electricity to him. But Shoto to me, like, feels very much like a better Merrill Kelly of just, hmm. I don't know, you... I. Uh, you're going to be really good and consistent and uh, like a 24% K rate. Like you are a Holly. I don't know. Nowadays I see 64 him. Like I want to have him like 40. I uh, showed him in I really do feel that he's going to go somewhere that is going to let him go five, six innings every single time. If not more like six innings. Yeah, here you go. And I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about him actually. I, I think he's going to be great. Yeah, I think he, 
is hurt by the fact that when we have somebody from an international league, we're like, look, we set the bar so high to get yeah. interested, right? We need the guy who has put up the Yamamoto stats bef- while before we're like, oh man, this guy is, is good. Sure. Um, and we're, we don't yet respect the guy who's just gone out and handled business pro- in a professional league for years and years and may not be overpowering, but is maybe smart and is, you know, not eye popping, but pretty good. Um, and I think I think that's him. I do think that because, you know, I, I I need to go back after Eno posted that stuff and really kind of like dig deeper into the arsenal because I had assumed he was going to give up a fair amount of contact. And so I was waiting. He was a guy who I was going to depend on the park and the team context and, and things like that. Um, but if his raw stuff is much better than I was maybe anticipating, then maybe he won't give up. He won't be as dependent on like infield defense or something for for yeah. his fantasy value. Yeah, and also I should mention um, with Shota, uh, 148 innings, 174 strikeouts last year in MPB. So it's not like he wasn't a strikeout guy. Um, and Yamamoto was a second in stuff plus too. Yeah, uh, but yeah, he's uh, he's really good, and uh, just enjoy it. He's gonna be good. Get him on your teams. Um, another potentially overlooked player uh is the pitcher you have 65 who's somehow still only 32 years old um even though he's pitched really? in the majors for 30 years um, oh my gosh wow and it's michael waka wow. 32 geez uh yeah. yeah michael waka um had this 2022 that i was very skeptical about because it felt very reliant on his change up command and uh, i just didn't really want to lean into it and it was 127 innings of a 332 era in 2022 112 whip and a 20% K rate and just felt too like I'm not going to go after this. However, 2023, he pretty much did the same thing. Um, 322 ERA, 116 whip as the, the walks went up a little bit, but I uh, 22% strikeout rate. And I'm finding myself liking Waka more and more. Um, I understand the inning totals have just not been there. He has not gone over 140 innings. I don't know since when. Um, but I like since 2018, he certainly hasn't. And the changeup is insanely good. I mm-hmm. cannot express this enough. 70% strike rate is a 94th percentile. I mean, so you see a 70% strike rate, or anything you go, whoa, okay. All right. I got you. 44% O swing on that 21% swinging strike rate. He has a higher O swing than zone rate. And he has that 70% strike rate. That to me is just absolutely bonkers. Um, if I'm Waka, I'm just throwing this more than 34%. I'm going to lean on this thing through my 32nd year season, <laughs> your old season, uh, maybe 33 as he turns it in, uh, in July, but I don't know. Give me a team that will lean in on like a good park, uh, as far as home runs go. Cause he is more of a home run guy or sorry, rather a fly ball guy. Cause of that change up, of course, but the way that. Waka utilizes that changeup, I think is fantastic. Obviously, the the supporting cast is not very good. Um, right. Nothing eclipses a, a 8% swing strike rate outside of that changeup. However, we've seen this before, where if you you can sneak in cult strikes a ton um, with either fastballs, four-seamers, or sinkers and cutters just to set up that changeup. The changeup works both hands, um, both righty and lefty. So, yeah, give me that team. Um, that has a good outfield defense, has a, you know, not not Cincinnati. Sorry, Nick Martinez. Um, and this could work out really well for Waka. Yeah, I, I think he I think he obviously gets overlooked because 
you know, we had a couple years where he was really poor. Um, you know, he, he really struggled in 2019. You can kind of write off 2020 again, shortened season, but, um, you know, 2019 and 2021 were not particularly good, but the Red Sox signed him because the end of 2021 was pretty solid for him when the Rays kind of did some, some tweaking. And so I look at it like, I think that, you know, I made that joke about his age at the beginning, but I think that when he really struggled for like two slash three years, if you count the COVID shortened years, it was easy to say like, oh, this he's on the downswing, you know, right. because it seemed like he had been around for so long, but he wasn't that old and he still isn't that old. And so he's able to kind of adjust and, and you know, modify how he attacks hitters. And, you know, are you getting, you know, I guess he was he, and he's also never been. I, I was shocked how he's never really been a strikeout pitcher. I thought that he maybe is now like tweaking the arsenal and was going to like, you know, regress from earlier strikeout rates. But like even his good years in like 2015, um, you know, 2018, 2014, like he he wasn't striking out a lot of guys. So you're getting the Michael Waka that you kind of were getting back when people were excited to roster him. But now yeah. everybody's looking at him like with a shoulder shrug. like, oh, I guess so. I mean- um so yeah, I'm, I'm in on better. it, and I think better. he's and I think he's great in like a 15 team league where there's less on the wire. And if you get a late round guy like a Michael Waka, um, he's just gonna be. I think he's just gonna be stable for you all season. Yeah. So so I mean, this is a tier of hey, all right, these aren't better than your standard Tobies. I think um, these are the ones that you feel like, oh yeah, this guy could be, it's, it's killing it for me. Oh my gosh, he's more than just a Toby. I don't actually I like the work he does. I like that he's here in the office. Um, and Waka could be that pretty quickly. There are times that Waka loses his command. And it's just, oh, dang. <laughs> oh, no. Um, but you can kind of pick him up. You can draft him and then just see where he's at. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, last year, Waka's first five starts uh, returned 19 earned runs. And that includes a glorious six innings of shut up baseball with 10Ks. And then after that, it was brilliance. Uh, he didn't have a single start. Oh, my gosh. Until... The, the the 6th of September, uh, or sorry, the 27th of August, that was more than three or sorry, more than 200 runs after that, which is insane. Um, going from May 2nd until then, uh, with obviously an injury in between, but still an, absolutely incredible. So he gets into that rhythm and then he just soars from there um, with that changeup. And as long as he has a changeup, I think early on, I, I'd feel pretty good about it. Yeah. Um, I feel pretty good about the next guy. You have on your list who is 66 for you and is 56 for me. Oh, wow. Um, and as somebody I thought I was out on coming into this year um, mm-hmm. and that backfired because he had a pretty solid season. Um, and I might be, you know, 56 isn't like super in on, but I, I think I'm back in a little bit on uh, Jose Barrios. So what's kind of funny is that first pitch Arizona, I remember I think like two years ago, uh, I asked Eno to. Uh, to heckle me um at the event i was like come on come into the thing and maybe it was 2019 i uh, come heckle us and he was trying to figure out things to say one of the things he said was jose barrios is not a toby and it's like i, I was like well i never said he was a toby but also he kind of is a toby i don't know uh, he said one year since the start of 2019 to have a whip underneath 119 one year 
Uh, that's like a borderline whip in a 12-teamer. If you have a 120 or a lower in a 12-teamer, that guy is dragging you down in that category. Strikeouts have been there somewhat consistently, save for 2022. It's been like 23% plus and whatnot. And the ERA, you used to call him the great undulator because he'd always be right between 3.5 and like 3.8. And what do you know? 3.65, like right in the middle. The yeah. great fundulator is here. And it's Jose Barrios. And the weird part is, what did he do? Well, sinkers showed up. Um, yeah. Sinkers took over for four seamers. And those were better at getting called strikes. 26% called strike rate. Um, the batted ball was far better, 38% um, ICR as opposed to the 51% from his four-seamer in 2022. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. That pitch gets destroyed. Yes. Absolutely torched. Yes. So I, I actually was really surprised to see that Barrios turned to more four-seamers as the season went on. Now, he got more called strikes on it and more whiffs, I think, because batters are more prepared for the sinker now. Um, 12.5% swing strike rate suddenly on his four-seamer after like 9% or so the uh, the previous couple of years. More called strikes on it. So the CSW was actually 96th percentile on his four-seamer. Believe it or not, 34%. What what the heck is going on? Um, 80th percentile on his sinkers, uh, CSW 31.5. And then there's the, the curveball, which by the way, Eric, I don't know if you realize this, Barrios' curveball is kind of like a signature pitch, right? It's the thing that we all kind of know about. Uh, it doesn't ever really get a ton of whiffs. <laughs> yeah. Um, 14% this past year, 13% in 2022, 15 in 2021. It's never really been that. 19, 2019, it was a 12.8. Like, what? That's, where's my 17, 18, 19? Where's my elite uh, curveball butt? It would get called strikes. It would get a lot of strikes in there too. So the way I see it with Brios is we might be going through another thing of turmoil. The idea of him being a 25% plus strikeout rate guy where he has an ERA of 3.5 or lower with a whip of 115 or lower, I just think is a small chance. Mm -hmm. I, I just think it's too small. If you are trying to get volume of strikeouts, if you're like in your draft and you're in your deeper league, like 15 teamer, and you say, man, I just don't have enough volume here and chance to win. Like the Blue Jays are a solid offense, but maybe they're trading away Vlad and Bo, who knows? Right. Um, and you need, you need some K's like, okay, he's going to flirt with 200 strikeouts. That's a cool thing. 184 this past year, uh, in 2021, it was 204. Like that is going to help you. And that's nice to have, especially in your 15 teamers. It's gonna be a lot harder to find that in my 12 teamers. It is a lot easier to find strikeouts throughout the year. So much so. And I'm fine with Borios. But it's very likely that he has a shaky April and then all of a sudden as a manager, you're just like, wait, hold on a second. Is this 2022 again? And am I going to have to endure a 523 ERA and a 142 whip for 32 starts that destroyed so many fantasy leagues, as I'm sure many people listening actually held on to Burrios throughout most of that year. So I don't know. I'm not totally sold that the sinker curveball four seamer mix that he has now. And this changeup that came alive, 18% swing strike rate this past year. Yay. More more strikes on that. That's good. Do I buy that that's going to stick around? No. Um, so yeah. I I, I he, Jose Barrios is just not that kind of guy that I go for because I think there's just too much mystery. And it's one of those that we kind of like look back at the end of the year. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess that's what Barrios did. Uh, hopefully it was good for me. So I'm not, I, I kind of agree with most of what you said, except I think that 
when people were drafting him in 2019, 2021, as the great undulator, as you said, there was still the like, ooh, there might be another level. I think if you start drafting him thinking that what he did in 2019 and 21 just like is who he is, um, and he's going to pitch to like a mid threes ERA, like somewhere between three, five and three, eight. Um, and he'll probably have a high around, you know, high eight, low nine K per nine. Um, like, I, I think there's value in that still, especially as the, the league ERA and, you know, all that stuff has, has gone up drastically. Um, I think the the change to the sinker is important, and I know you said he went back to the four seam more as the as the year went on. But at least according to Alex Chamberlain's pitch leaderboard, where he has the month by month breakdown mm. in March and May, March, April, and May, Barrios was throwing the fastball four seam twenty four percent of the time. In July, that went up to twenty six percent of the time. But it went to 18% of the time in August and then 15% of the time in September. So he actually ended the year by going more sinker heavy. I'm going to push back on this. So I've got, the, I've got the game by game. Ooh, okay. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, so like in September, it was mostly about 12%. And then there's one game against Boston. It's like, yo, I'm going to do this for a seamer 25% of the time. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, then all of a sudden in, in August, it's like, I'm going to just throw this. Um, every game is like 25% or so, say for one um, against your Red Sox team in July. It was like it, it, in the beginning of the year, the first three starts, we thought, yeah, actually really in, in like May and or, or, or April and early May. And then all of a sudden, bam, it's 12%, 15%, mm-hmm. 8%, 9%. You know, he brought it down and then he brought it back. I think he's like constantly trying to figure out how that four seamer works. Sure. Um, and I hope. He's got something like this is he's the great undulator. I don't know what to trust with him. I have I have no idea what this is going to be. I guess like really my biggest thing is like, is it if I don't know what a guy's gonna be, is this enough of a ceiling for me to be chasing if there's like a flip-flop of it, you know? Yeah, I think it depends on where you're at in your rotation build at this time. I am in on Barrios as a no longer high ceiling upside pick, but a stable veteran pick where like, I think I know what I'm going to get from him season long, like in a roto yeah. format. I not don't like, uh, yeah, that's the thing. Not like within the, within the month. The, the problem but, is like, do you have the discipline to just close your eyes? You know, uh, because no. like, what's going to happen is the first half and second half numbers. We go back and all the time. Like, okay, the first half he was this second half. He was that. And we could just say like, no, I trust that Barrios is going to be, at the end of the day, going to be the great undulator and be fine. You might have done that in 2022 and you got burned. Um, and I, the classic example for me was like this Erod season of, I don't know, like 2018 or 2019. I can't remember anymore. Where it was until the middle of August, he had like a 4 4 ERA and a, like a 131 whip or something. And then it was okay, great. He had like four straight or like six straight starts that were so good that now he was like a 3 6 5 ERA for the year. And the thing is, you're not going to have erod for those at that point um you shouldn't have you should have moved on the wise thing is not expect them to have like this incredible run to correct everything mm-hmm. so i don't know I, as someone that really enforces the burn and churn a ton in 12 teamers i cannot express enough of like drafting should be about how you plan for the season ahead it, it, to me it, it, the, the the odds of barrios making me uh, calm and not anxious as a manager is too low uh, for me to chase it. 
Sure. Well, I like pain and constant (laughs) frustration. So I'll just roster him and and hate myself most of the year. Um, I'm excited to talk to you about the next guy because as another pitcher who I have higher than you do, and we'll get to that conversation after this break. So I may be giving into recency bias. I'll admit. Um, Your next pitcher who you have 67, I have 55. And it's Jordan Montgomery. Um, and I admit that maybe I'm playing the you know playoff end of the season run with Texas in my head a little bit. But I also just really like the changes that they made with his approach. Um, and I've always believed that there was just a stable fantasy producer in there. Um, and... I'm I don't think you're out on him at 67, but I'm curious why you have him, you know, below, uh, you know, some of these guys who you're not really sure about, like, you know, or some of these older, you know, potential blow up guys like Charlie Morton and Eovaldi. Sure. Um, so when you're saying that the like the changes that the Rangers made, uh, I'm assuming you're talking about, say, like incorporating some more four seamers, some games. Or uh, some games leaning more into the curveball, for example. Um, yeah, and it, I'm also. It, yeah, sorry, go, go for it. No. Well, I'm. I'm also talking about. I mean, I know it was like the the catchy name of like the the death ball. You know that yeah, like know, Jeff Passan did a whole go. thing about. Um, <laughs> really, in like October, that you know pulled up a lot of. Um, uh, Feet, you know, just got a lot of, of uh, eyeballs on it. And also, sure. uh, I'm looking just now. He also did, Jeff Passan did tweet you in one of the videos on the on the website about the effect of the the death ball and, and tunneling. Oh, yeah. But one I, of the, the tweets I put out. Oh, I, I just I just quote tweeted the MLB yeah. video of it. Yeah. Um, but, I, but I just mean the idea of um, the... The, the vertical approach angle and the way that he they kind of shifted and maybe I'm misremembering that it was Texas that is responsible for this but I thought that it was Texas who was tweaking some of his release point to improve that that tunneling um, on the fastball and on the curveball because he has a really high release point on the fastballs um, and so I, I feel like that kind of jumped the effectiveness of his offerings, you know, in the in the later half of the the year, and in particular in the in the playoffs. Um, but again, maybe I'm putting too much emphasis on Texas doing it, and it was just a good run of games. What I think happened is that you just remember watching one game against the Red Sox where uh, Jordan Montgomery had 14 whiffs on his curveball and 37 throws. I wasn't really watching Red Sox games at the end of the year. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, that's that's a huge thing here, right? Is uh, Jordan Montgomery has actually kind of been like that. I mean, I do agree with you. I'm looking at this now. I'm, I am seeing a better uh, success uh, rate on his curveball of consistency with CSW ever since he joined the uh, the Rangers-ish. Um, when did he actually join the Rangers? Was it the... Uh, <laughs> It would have because been it's deadline. like the start of July is when I start to see success rates. Yeah, with it. Um, um, July thirtieth. Yeah, July thirtieth. Uh, he was traded from the Cardinals. right. 
So this is actually, I want to go back to Scott Chu's um, Rolling Graphs presentation at, at um, First Pitch Arizona. And I can't tell you how many times he emphasized the point that like Jake Berger was not better because he was a Marlin. It's because he was better for a month while the White Sox were, you know, he's on the White Sox. But if you saw the rolling charts, you would have seen that he was already better before he left there. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe, you know, that's the case with Montgomery. Maybe he figures something with the, the curveball or so. We have seen that before, though. Um, I cannot tell you how many times last year I saw, oh, my God, the Yankees traded away Jordan Montgomery. Now he's with the Cardinals. And now because he's throwing this four-seamer more than he's the greatest thing ever. And he had like this four-star stretch. That was the best. And then he was terrible in September. Well, so I'm looking right. You're right. And I'm looking right now on the horizontal approach angle changes on the curveball, which, Mm -hmm. again, credit to uh, Alex Chamberlain's stuff. It started in June. So he was Mm -hmm. still on the Cardinals. Um, it started in June, it continued in July, and then continued again, shifting the horizontal approach angle in August and, and September. So it was something that the Rangers built on or something that he continued building on. But he, but here's what's interesting. So in the beginning of the year, defense independent ERA for his curveball, 371 in March and April, 741 in May. The swinging strike rate on the curveball in March and April was 10.1, and it was 10.6 in May. As he starts shifting the horizontal approach angle of the curveball, the swinging strike rate in June is 17%. It's 15% in July. It's 19% in August. It's 24.3% in September and October. Um, And the defense independent ERAs also drop. 2.97 in June, 2.28 in July, negative 1.06 on the pitch in August, 1.5 in September and October. So we won't attribute this to the Rangers, but it's clear that he was tweaking the way he was throwing his curveball as the season went on. And we're seeing very clear results that it improved the quality of of that pitch pretty substantially and his sinker has always been a solid pitch like n- nothing exceptional about it but you know it's it's it doesn't get rocked um it doesn't miss bats at all but it doesn't get rocked and the sinker got much better as the year went on also um it gave up far less hard contact in august and september it had much better defense independent eras in august and september and so there is some logic to that tunneling argument between the sinker and the curveball which became his two most used pitches as he was adjusting the horizontal approach angle and so again we're not like oh my god we've unlocked another level of jordan montgomery he's a sp2 on your fantasy team you know i have him in my in the mid 50s in my rankings but I just think that we saw a pitcher who had a, made a meaningful change to improve overall effectiveness of his arsenal, give himself a little bit of a jump in swing and miss, right? He had a 13.6% swinging strike rate in the second half of the year. That's pretty solid. I mean, considering what you're used to getting from Jordan Montgomery. So I, I just kind of feel like it's a solid profile and a guy that depending on where he signs, I, I would like to have rounding out my fantasy rotation. This is awesome stuff, Eric. Um, uh, I really appreciate you kind of leaning on that curveball and the and the, uh, the horizontal approach stuff. Uh, by the way, everybody listen to Alex or, or read Alex Chamberlain's article about horizontal approach angle. Um, it's up on Fangraphs. It's a fascinating article. He really kind of showcased like, hey, I did all the research on this. And like, yeah, we shouldn't really care too much about it. It's not to say that it doesn't apply here for Jordan Montgomery. It's just that right. in general, like when it comes to VAA, which matters so much, Horizontal approach angle matters a lot less. 
Um, now, a couple things. Um, so I'm looking at our game logs, and by the way, if you guys don't know, one of the coolest parts about our game logs is that we can actually separate by pitch per game at a big level. It's a little slow at the moment. We're actually one of the major things of this offseason is to make that filtering faster for everyone. But I can get all this individual data across any game range I want. So I so for example, since July 2nd is when I'm doing this. Let's just see the last three months of the year. How did Jordan Montgomery's pitches perform? So curveball, absolutely. CSW was through the roof. It was like 36% or something like that. Um, and I uh, just swing strike rate was 20%. Things are great, except for its ICR, 41%. Not good. It was not a pitch that when contact was made was good for Montgomery a lot. Uh, generally, when it comes to ICR, um, again, just I know it's kind of new to a lot of people. It's ideal contact rate. Essentially says when a batter makes contact, is it good for them or not? 40% is the threshold that I've really seen of like, oh no, not good. 35% is like, okay, we're cool. And sub 30% is incredible. So if I see 41% on the death ball, on the pitch that is supposed to be the one that is carrying him, not good. In fact, the sinker had a better ICR than the curveball. However, do not get nearly the same amount of whiffs. So there's more contact necessarily as better or not. Um, PLV absolutely hates the, the sinker. It's like a 4-5. It hates the changeup too. The changeup got worse this year. Um, it was m- much less consistent for Montgomery. And... I think at the end of the day, that curveball we keep talking about, it was still about 20% usage. It wasn't like a 35% usage. It wasn't like right. a 40% usage. Jordan Montgomery has always been to me, as I've seen him a ton over the years, one of the most boring pitchers to watch. For sure. Because what he does is he he tries really to do the neck beard approach a lot. And that is by nibbling. A uh, neck beard approach is like I am going out of my way to try to not make mistakes inside the zone. I'm going to throw my curveball out of the zone. I'm going to jam left-handers now with my uh, sinker inside. I'm going to try and use that changeup away and all that kind of stuff and really make you swing at the thing you don't want to do, which means sometimes he does walk more batters or he isn't as efficient as we want. Um, but at the end of the day, Jordan Montgomery has never had a hip or nine under eight. This is not someone who is a, a hit preventer. Mm-hmm. Hit preventers are like around seven and change. Those are the ones that we actually maybe think about it. Can maybe argue the defenses he's been on. Possibly, I wouldn't say that New York was a bad defense. We know that St. Louis was an amazing defense in 2022. Um, it was a little bit worse this year. The Rangers, not a bad defense in field-wise this year. I, I just don't see this big impact guy who's going to go higher in drafts um, because of what he did in the playoffs. And if you watch those games, he deserved the success because he commanded super well. I mean, mm-hmm. he was really putting things where he wanted to. I remember pulling up one of those strike zone plots and being like, guys, this is pristine. And a lot of times, that's what we see in the playoffs. Guys are so much more locked in, so much more focused, so much more just, I need to execute this exactly right. And regular season, you can get a little bit more lax. There are a lot more things kind of circling your mind and you can't just you know block them out as effectively as you need to in the playoffs. So... I don't know. I see I see history of high whips. It was 119 last year for Montgomery. Um, I don't see a guy who's going to hint at a 25% carry, even with the death ball, because that changeup got worse. The The four-seamer doesn't miss bats. The sinker does not either. And the curveball is not a 25% swing strike rate pitch. So, and it's only 20% usage. If he goes to a team that says, look, you got to throw this 35% of the time, I don't know if that'll work, because he doesn't get like a 67% strike rate or something with it. It's just not enough. 
it's fine. It is better than a Toby. You're going to have Jordan Montgomery and it's going to be fine. But sure. I would rather go for something that I feel like I'm pumping my fist every time he starts. And if I if he's not, then I can kind of move on. And I think the gap between Jordan Montgomery and a Toby you find on the waiver wire is smaller than Jordan Montgomery and one of those guys in the 50s working out. Mm-hmm. I, I hear you on that. I mean, I, I will say that like the range of guys I have Jordan Montgomery ranked around is like Jose Barrios. Like Tyler Wells, Taj Bradley, Mitch Keller. Are you reading my list? No. <laughs> um, you know, I, I actually have Braxton Garrett up in there too, who we have yet to discuss. Um, ah, yeah. But but the idea being like, I don't think of any of those guys as like, oh man, that's super exciting. And so it might be a whole tier of guys that I just skip in a draft if I if yeah. I'm at a point where I don't need that. But I'm also ranking in the sense of like, if I am in a 15 team league and I need somebody that I think is stable and, you know, maybe he, as my SP4, if I've like missed on some, you know, I got sniped on some guys earlier, I'm in the 50s in my rankings. I'd rather not, you know, be only at an SP4 there, but like sometimes you're, you're going to be and a guy like a Barrios or a Montgomery in a 15 team league is like, okay, I, I feel pretty good about what I'm going to get there. It's not my upside pick, but maybe I make that later on. Um, where, with where one of these I guys rank? that rounds out our top 200. Where where oh, did I rank Braxton Garrett? Oh my um, gosh. Yeah, I oh boy. You have him, we're one, not going to talk about him for a long you time. You have him 152. Yeah, oh my gosh. Um I mean, I went over him on um this is actually something that I uh, I'm doing new this year. Um I kind of sat down and thought about it. I've said for a long time that I am never going to have an article behind a paywall and that is still true. Um, but I'm giving early access this year is what I'm doing. Essentially, every single morning, I'm going over every team rotations. You guys are going to hear that on the Plus Pitch podcast. But I'm also writing the blurbs I'm going to be using for their top 300 um, now. So that I means it's a lot of work. It's like, you know, 50,000 words or something for that. So I got to do it, you know, over time. And I'm giving you guys access to that um, if you have PL Pro. Uh, the first one's going to be free with the Marlins, though. So check that one out. Uh, next week, you'll see what I think about Braxton Garrett, which is going to be better than 152. Don't worry. I just yeah, <laughs> not a big fan of that one. Um, but we got it. We got three more left and, uh, you know, we, we got to keep going. So we got it. I, I yeah. was I had so much Garrett Whitlock this year. Me too. And was so burned uh, because, <laughs> again, he couldn't, you know, he battled injuries. There was the, yeah. oh, maybe he's not meant for the rotation. Um your ranking is. is based on the belief, which the Red Sox have backed up, that he will enter camp with a shot at a yes. rotation spot again. Mm-hmm. Um, I will probably be back in on this again because every time I'm all in on something and then I go away from it, um, it comes back and succeeds. Josh Lowe, I miss <laughs> you so much. Um, so tell me why you're in on Whitlock. Uh, 22 22- percent swing strike rate two straight years on a slider which is 93rd percentile among all starting pitchers with a 37 percent csw i mean that's okay right there you got your beautiful elite slider great sinker high called strike pitch at 22 percent love to see that right at 40 percent icr which is slightly below average what is cool is he actually can strike guys out with this we've seen this before he had a surprisingly high swing strike rate against the lefties on this pitch as he nailed it uh, inside corner um, a ton as he came back over front hip. He actually can do that. Um, so I do think that Whitlock, if he adjusts his sinker to be less 
glove side against right handers and you know really use utilizes both sides of the plate with it lefties is inside and just really inside all the time uh, I think this can actually be a really amazing pitch for him and then oh yeah he's got to change at the 19% swing strike rate and a 67% strike rate for him um, I think that wasn't as good as it can be last year it was floated a little bit but I see this three pick pitch mix um, and I see a pitcher that the Red Sox are gonna say oh cool you can go six innings right here you go uh, and let him go constantly and it's rare for me to find guys at this point that actually have strikeout upside. He had a 26% mm-hmm. uh, strikeout rate in 70 innings in 2022. And then it was 24 in 2023. Why? Because, again, the slider is so dang good. It really is a nasty thing. And think about everything we liked about Brady Singer and throwing a better changeup. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that. that's what this is. Um, so, yeah, I'm a fan of that for a team that... I mean, I don't know. Are they going to win games next year? I hope so, for your sake. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think obviously it'll totally depend on this offseason, but I think they're going to be aggressive. They've given all indication they're going to be aggressive. Um, I I will be back in again this year. Um, And for me, that's a big lesson for myself of like all the things I talked myself into about Whitlock in 2023 still remain. Yep. Um, He battled some injuries and then was moved to the bullpen and you know was was not as effective as i as we wanted but nothing to me meaningfully changed in in the arsenal and i still believe there's a chance that he can be a legitimate starting pitcher as in going five six innings every time out not like you know some piggyback situation yeah exactly Um, also like listen we don't want to put too much into coaching but like andrew bailey's been a pretty good pitching coach um, yeah. it, in the majors in the past. Um, he's, you know, working with these Red Sox now. And so I think there's, you know, when I see somebody that has the raw potential I really like in Whitlock and then gets probably better coaching and a chance at a rotation spot, um, I'm just not going to talk myself off of something that I believed in because of one bad year. Um, and I think it's important for some of us to learn. It's like if we had those convictions and they didn't pan out, but they didn't pan out you know, it wasn't like, oh, this guy just everything changed. They just didn't work for a year. Like that doesn't necessarily mean we need to totally, you know, close up shop and go home. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And Woodlock, um, again, uh, just monitoring camp. If he's yeah. like doing well and doing all the stuff correctly. Right. Uh, this is the kind of pick that's like the Seth Lugo last year. And also what the Red Sox do in the offseason, right? They yeah, wind right, up bringing absolutely. in three starting pitchers. Um, then, like, you know, we know you don't Sale. Need to jump over everyone to get him. Right. Like, we know Sale and Brian Bay are going to be in the rotation. rotation. Great. Yeah. Um, we're going to end with with two Dodgers. Uh, and we're going to talk about them together because we kind of, I kind of want you to, I want you to, to, to discuss kind of why one over the other. Sure. Um, so we're ending with Ryan Pepio and Emmett Sheehan. Um, I think I slightly prefer Emmett Sheehan. Um, mm. You have Pepio one spot higher. Obviously, you know, we're splitting hairs, but uh, why Pepio over Sheehan in this iteration of the list? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, nailed it. At least, at least Pepio's got this changeup that came up as like an 80 grade changeup and then it was mm. terrible for strike rates of 44%. And all of a sudden, oh, wait, no, 68%. Um, and that's really cool. I also think that Pepio has a locked or at least a more stable um, spot for the Dodgers right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he gets the the call before Emmett Sheehan if the Dodgers are still looking for something. Um, it's a 14% overall swing strike rate. I know in 42 innings, so I can't really lean into that. 
And I don't know how much I actually like his four-seamer thrown 51% of the time. But I kind of see the changeup and slider as both solid offerings. Really, the changeup is so dang good. It is it is really a fantastic pitch, I think, that Pepio has here. And it's a good scenario that I, I feel is a little more stable. But honestly, I don't disagree with you that uh, Emmett Sheehan might be the better one to go for. Um, the slider at 21% swing strike rate is fantastic. Um, he also increased its usage a little bit. He had these ridiculous games like... The last game of the season at Coors was eight whiffs on a slider and seven on his changeup out of nowhere. Um, and what we saw from him previously was just, hey, I'm a fastball guy and I got nothing else. And all of a sudden the slider just is good, I guess. Um, even against the the Giants in 4.2 innings, he had four walks, but it was nine strikeouts. Again, seven whiffs on that slider and then some on the changeup as well. So there's a lot of promise there. I mean, you see the quick numbers of, oh, hey, 23% swing strike rate on the changeup. Oh, hey, 21% on the slider. Yeah. That's really cool. And then you look at the, the four-seamer, which is very interesting because it has the best, like one of the best VAAs. It's a really flat arm angle, but it's only like 15 um, induced vertical break, which is not that great. But he's throwing it at 95, 96. He gets some extension on it. Um, and he gets a ton of arm side break on it. So I'm a little worried about it being uh, a little too much movement toward the bat, essentially, uh, to miss above it. But it could turn into that, like, I mean, he's really into high lock, um, Emmett Sheen, uh, 90th percentile four-seamer high lock. So you throw in high lock, you throw in slider, and throw a changeup that both have whiffs. Like, that totally works, and I very much see it. Uh, I guess, like, I think Pepe is going to get more of an opportunity and is just a little more stable while Emmett Sheen is more exciting. But yeah, why wouldn't I go for that? So yeah, I think I'm with you. Emmett Sheen over Pepe at this point. Yeah, I, I think it depends on, you know, like looking at his player page on, on pitcher list, Emmett Sheehan's, as you mentioned, like all of the, you know, the swing and strike rate, CSW, all of that on the changeup jump out in a way that suggests like this, that he has two legitimate secondary offerings. Yeah. PLV less... Uh, bullish on the changeup, um, and nothing is over five for Sheehan, right? Um, and so there, there is some like okay, small sample size, you know, sixty MLB innings. Um, what are we, what are we really getting here? But uh, the slider's really good. The changeup showcased the ability to be good. Um, you know. I, you know, I'm now that I'm, as I look more at his changeup, like, you know, an IRC at 11th percentile, you know, IRC is. ICR. ICR. Sorry. Yeah, I, I was know. like, what's IRC? I'm looking, I'm looking at it yet. and I'm still reading it incorrectly. Ah, but, yes. You know, 48% ICR is not yeah. great. I mean, how many times though did it happen? Right. Not many so, because only tw- 49 batters face and 28 of them were a strikeout or a walk. So very limited yeah. balls in play. Um. So it's all it. I feel like there's something here. Um, I. He's also a New York boy. Did you know that? I didn't actually oh, even no. know. That. Born in, in the city. Yeah, <laughs> gotta be gotta be in now. Um, but I hear you. Like uh, my concern, and this is why, like I will rank him higher than Pepio going into the year, is because he's another guy where my concern is: does he have a spot? Yeah. Um, and we'll we'll know that. Right. Based on if the Dodgers sign anybody, if Kershaw comes back, you know, if they make a trade for a cease or, you know, whatever they're doing in the offseason. Like, yeah, I think that Sheehan probably gets bumped before Pepio because 
you know, whatever, younger options can start the year in AAA, all of that stuff. Um, but to me, like, you know that going in, um, you know, to normal drafts, you'll know going in if yeah. he has a rotation spot or not. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, just keep an eye on that one and monitor also just how's his slider and changeup looking? Is he, you know, the, the approach of it with that machine, I think the triangle that he does is more susceptible to being actually something real as opposed to Pepe. It's just like a really good changeup <laughs> and he needs more. But we do love that upside. We do. Exciting here at the end of drafts. He's no, he's no boring, boring Jordan Montgomery. That's no, for sure. so boring. So boring. Uh, what was not boring was talking to you about pitching. Always oh. thrills me. Um, we're going to continue on with uh, from 71 on in our next episode. Um, I am Eric Samulski, the Pelican. I'm Nick Pollock, the Lion. And we'll see you next week for more Scarf Talk. <laughs>